a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. As we think about the offices of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he uh, is in the office of a prophet. He speaks to us the truths uh, of God. The prophet is one who takes what God has told him and gives to God's people. We see also that he is a priest. We see that his office of priest is such that he would go to God for matters about his people. That's his priestly office. And then also there is this kingly office in which he preserves and protects us. But we see, uh, perhaps it is appropriate for us to see that his priestly office actually is that one which is most important. Uh, it is that one in which he is the mediator for his people. And what we have in this high priestly prayer uh, is what the Lord Jesus, what our Savior, really thinks about us. What he really thinks about us. Read in your hearing was Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And in chapter 5 of Hebrews, we have revealed for us this uh, this truth about who Christ was regarding his priestly work. He was a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He, he was not of the tribe of Levi. Uh, we know that the Lord Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And so we see that he has a very unique priesthood. Christ, the ultimate, eternal, final, complete, true high priest is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 5. As we see, the same was true of the Levitical priesthood was true of the Lord Jesus. He was chosen from among men, as Hebrews 5 indicates. He was appointed by God. He acts on behalf of men in relation to God. You will see that in Acts, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 5. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And also we see that he's an eternal priest because we're in eternal need of mediation by a priest who does primarily two things. He propitiates by way of sacrifices and he also intercedes. Now we know that the Levitical priest, he didn't live forever. He was a mere man. The Lord Jesus was not a mere man. He was and is the God man. And we might wonder why is it that we need an eternal priest and it should be an indication to us about our own salvation. In other words, what exactly is our need regarding our crushing problem of sin? And the Lord Jesus Christ came for one purpose, for one purpose only, and that was to be a Savior. And he came to be a Savior for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was because of our crushing problem of sin. The Lord Jesus' mission to this earth corresponds perfectly to the great need of man, and that is his crushing problem of sin. And so the eternal priest does two things. Primarily, he propitiates by sacrifices. Now, propitiation is a pretty big word. The idea is that it satisfies the demands of a violated holiness. Satisfies the demands of a violated holiness. Expiation to extinguish guilt, pay the penalty when sin is expiated, it's put aside, blotted out, included in, involved in this propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, is this idea of atonement to bring together a restoration of friendly relations. 
Atonement uh, is actually, uh, we're helped in our understanding of atonement if we actually take the word and break it up into a way that perhaps you've seen. At one meant, at one meant atonement. This idea is carried forth and is does correspond to the actual definition of the word. This idea of what was separated uh, is brought together. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does in this aspect of his priestly function of propitiation. We know that the Levitical priest brought a sacrifice, and we know that the Lord Jesus was a sacrifice. But we also know that he did a second thing, and he continues to do a second thing as the high priest, and that is that he intercedes. Christ is continually interceding for us, as in the high priestly prayer. And this is the thing that can give us assurance of where we stand with God. And so Christ's function as priest is also a place where we can go, we can and should go to John chapter 17 and look at this prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed for us. And in that we should gain assurance of our own salvation. To see that uh, Christ is permanently there for us. He is fulfilling what must be done on our behalf moment by moment by moment. Now, if you doubt the necessity of an eternal priest, an eternal mediator, uh, one who stands in eternity to continue to uh, pray to assist us in our walk on this earth, to continually uh, involve himself in assisting us in being at one with the Godhead, the Trinity, then you could look no further than your human relations. How difficult is, you, is it for you to maintain a sweet relationship with your family or your friends? There's this continual process, this continual care. We see the incredible vulnerability of our relationships, and that, of course, is revealed in no less of a place than in our own sinfulness and our relation to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know one thing about our sin. It will send us to hell. We know another thing about our sin. It grieves God. It grieves God. And so we need a mediator, one who is going to the Father, not to a Father who is harsh, not to a Father who is unhearing, not to a Father who cares not for us, but to a Father who is sympathetic to who we are. And he hears his Son, and he receives and acts on our behalf. And so in this passage of Scripture, we have insight into the person of Christ that's found nowhere else in the Scriptures. And it's appropriate, I think, that we see that this is uh, a tremendous input into the entire progress of redemption as we see the Lord Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. And so I would draw your attention to John chapter 17. like to begin reading in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so for the reading of God's word, thank you for your attention to that. You know, there are a lot of things that we can be encouraged about. Sometimes we, we long just to hear a positive word, a break don't we? We, we? we long for a certain word, a sure word, an encouraging word, something that we can latch on to, hold on to regarding uh, a myriad of things. In John chapter 17, you've got something that you can lay hold of. It's, it's immovable. It's the immovability of the promises of Christ and of his own purposes and plans for us. It is, it is exactly how he thinks about the redeemed. And it should be an encouragement to you today. But let's see what this is about. I'd like to draw your attention really to four, four headings. The first heading simply is glory. The second heading is the objective truth about the redeemed. third heading is the supplications of Christ. I said four, there are three. Glory. 
glory. Verse 1, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, what is the Lord Jesus saying? This idea of glory to bestow honor, to bestow glory upon Christ. The hour has come. We understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is right at the crucifixion with his high priestly prayer. When he finishes praying, it is recorded in John, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John, in the next chapter, that the Lord Jesus is betrayed and taken into custody. And we know that he's crucified shortly after that. And so what the Lord Jesus is affirming is that this thing is done. The hour has come. And a sovereign God and the sovereign God alone can speak about things that perhaps in some ways are future as being complete. There's no lack of certainty in what God has determined to do, but nonetheless the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Part of the idea here is this idea that the Father is validating and confirming all that the Son was sent to do. It is an affirmation, and we, of course, understand that the Lord Jesus, uh, He indicates that glory is something that He has already experienced. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now who else can speak of this glory? But God. The Bible says in verse 2, Since you've given him, that is the Lord Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now let's think about this. For a minute. So there has uh, there was a gift exchange between the Father and the Son. That's what it says here uh, in, in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So perhaps you've had a question about the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. What primarily is its purpose? Well, we know that he uh, has the authority over all things. He has the authority, for instance, over the molecules of illness. He can straighten them out. He can make that which was crooked straight, that which was uh, incurable, he can cure it. He can set right problematic cells in our bodies. We know also that he commands the wind, for instance. That it is his authority over the wind and the waves. But we also know that it is his authority that brings about redeeming the gift that the Father gave the Son. You know, we sometimes talk about gifts. We talk about gifts in a negative way sometimes. But that's not normal. Gifts are normally good. And we're very happy to get them. And that's exactly the way that is spoken of here. It's not some strange perversion of gift. The Lord Jesus Christ has received a gift. The redeemed are spoken of as a gift from the Father. Now that should be encouraging to the redeemed. I'm, I'm a, I've been given to 
Christ. Now, we recognize that in the state in which they were given to the Lord Jesus, there's one problem. They were yet unredeemed. Christ took care of that in his work as priest. He redeemed the gift given by the Father. The Father was to bestow upon Christ the honor of one who has accomplished the greatest of all works, the ultimate victor. Again, verse 5. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Lord Jesus Christ, that great victor, the one who purchased redemption for all that the Father would give him. something interesting in the category of glory and that is a certain glory to the redeemed now this isn't God's glory he shares this glory with no one in verse 6 the Lord Jesus says I have manifested your name to the people as he speaks to his father whom you gave me out of the world yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now, I'm using the term glory here for the redeemed because the Lord Jesus uses the term glory for the redeemed in verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This reflected glory, of course, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is not reflected glory. He is no reflector of glory. He alone is glorious, right? But we understand that we as the redeemed reflect the glory of God. In other words, the idea here with this glory, uh, not unlike the glory of the Son in some ways, is that we're approved by God. The Apostle Paul addresses this same idea uh, to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, let's consider how the Lord Jesus speaks about the redeemed. Consider how Jesus reports on these imperfect, sometimes inept apostles who are still learning their trade. Again, this is, we, we can see this in the scriptures, right? We, we have a, a, and should have a great level of sympathy for the apostles and those who followed the Lord Jesus. They, they didn't really understand. I mean, they, they had a long-standing misperception of what Messiah would be. They, they, they saw the, 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 the teachers, the Pharisees, uh, would teach them that Messiah was to be this political king uh, that had much to do with the military conquest and had they really taken the scriptures seriously, they would certainly understand that man's great problem isn't the need for military conquest. 
Man's great problem has to do with this crushing issue of sin. And so the Savior must correspond to filling that great need. But here's the Lord Jesus, and he's speaking to the Father about the redeemed. In particular, he's referring to the apostles at this point, these, these apostles who sometimes they argued, sometimes they seemed a little bit inept and awkward and so forth. And what does he say about them? Well, in verse 6, he says, they have kept your word. They've kept your word. As we walk faithfully with the Lord, we recognize that as we grow in our own self-understanding, as the Lord Jesus works on us through the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word, we, we understand ourselves more fully. We recognize that we fall short. But what does the Lord Jesus say about His redeemed? He says, they have kept He goes on in verse 7. They know the source of Christ's teaching is none other than the Father. They understand where it is that the Lord Jesus got what he is teaching the redeemed. He knows the source. He didn't just make it up. Verse 8. They have received the Father's words. They've received the Father's words. Uh, this isn't true for everyone. You perhaps have had the experience of sharing the gospel with someone, and you can mark the fact that they actually didn't receive the words of God. They didn't care for them. They didn't take them in. They had no impact on their life. As the Lord Jesus speaks about the apostles, about the redeemed who would follow them, he says, they, they received your words. Continuing in verse 8, they've come to know the truth that Christ came from being with the Father and was sent by the Father. This is part of the work of the old human Levitical priest. He didn't appoint himself. He was appointed by God. He didn't select his mission. It wasn't just a choose-your-own-mission idea here. Well, there was a specific thing that Christ was sent by the Father to do. And the Lord Jesus, as he speaks to his Father, he says, they understand the mission. That's pretty important, wouldn't you say? They understood what it was that the Father was all about what it was that the Son was all about. Glory. Now let's look secondly at the objective truth about the redeemed. Beginning here in verse 9, we see that the Lord Jesus is now looking to the apostles and in some ways beyond those who will follow in redemption. We see what Christ thinks about, what he reports to his Father. Of course, when we pray, we're, 
When we tell the Lord something, we're not informing him of things he doesn't know. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the unique position of praying while others were hearing. And there was a purposeful revelation in that prayer that we, of course, receive as a gift in John chapter 17. So we see what the Lord Jesus reported on regarding the apostles. And now let's look at the objective truth about the redeemed. The objective truth about the redeemed. This is true not only of the apostles, but also of those who would follow. What, what is the truth about us? In other words, what has God said is true about you if you are redeemed? Well, the first thing we see in verse 9 is that they are owned by Christ. They're owned by Christ. Now, the scriptures make much of this idea of slave. I think it is appropriate that we see that the mission that God calls each redeemed person to is a battle. Life on this earth is, is a battle. It, we can only really enter into and follow the orders of one whose relationship is defined by kind of a have-to. We don't get to kind of check out and say, hey, you know, I'm sick today. I understand. It's okay to be sick. But the point is, is that we, we again, we, we have a master uh, in our relationship as such that there's a compulsion to follow him. But in this idea of ownership in verse, excuse me, in chapter 17 of John in verse 9, that's not really the idea that's being set forward. It's not at all like that. It's kind of like when a big brother is asked by one of his peers, is that your younger brother? Is that messy, unkempt little boy that's lollygagging around, is that your brother? And then he says, yeah, yeah, that's my brother. And I love him, even though he's a bit awkward and unkempt. That's the kind of ownership that is being set forward. He owns us. They are mine. Not in a, not in a negative tone. There's no negative tone here. There's no, this has nothing to do with, yes, they're my slaves and they do what I say. That's not what's being set forward here in the prayer. I am willing I am unashamed of them as my people. They're a gift, a love gift. There's no trick. The Father doesn't give junk to the Son. They're owned by Christ. He's un unashamed to be associated with them, to claim them as his own. Verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. Okay. We have a lot of ownership words going on here, but there's another phrase in verse 10. I am glorified in them. I'm glorified in them. 
Not only is this what Christ is saying about the redeemed, but it's the objective truth about who the redeemed are. Christ is glorified in the redeemed. He has preserved them while they were with him. And he requests that the Father keep them as well. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, But now I... Him coming to you. The Lord Jesus has preserved while they were with him, and he requests the Father to keep them as well. Verse 14 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As certified recipients of saving faith through the word of Christ, they are hated by the world. This is the expected result of receiving Christ. Again, uh, these are the objective truths about the redeemed. Have you received Christ? Then you are hated by the world. It's a statement of fact. It's the objective truth about the redeemed. But the Lord Jesus Christ is fully aware of that. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That certainly is the understood expectation. They're hated by the world. Please remove them from the world. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't pray in that way. And we know that our own experience is such that that isn't normal. It isn't normal that an individual who is been a love gift from the Father to the Son, redeemed by the Son, and then walks in this world hated by the world, it isn't normal for them to then be immediately removed. No, they stay. They stay. The redeemed mostly stay in a world that hates them for purposes known to God. Hated by the world, yet loved by Christ. So, even as the Apostle Peter would say, don't be surprised, we saw the same thing in the Gospels and other places in the Scriptures. The Thessalonians were told by the Apostle Paul that they received the word in much affliction. Well, that's not abnormal. Everyone receives the word in much affliction. I mean, who among us heard the Gospel in heaven? Everywhere else there's affliction and trouble and sin and death and so forth and so on. This is normal. They're hated by the world. That's the objective truth. If, we, if you get all upset and despondent over the fact that your unsaved friends or those who are unmoored to faithful biblical truth, that they, they don't like you, don't be surprised. This is The Lord Jesus has, has already prayed for us on this very matter. Now, it doesn't authorize us to be unkind or ungracious or discourteous in any way. But nonetheless, we know that being attached to, redeemingly being attached to the Lord Jesus Christ means that we will be hated by the world. But that's not 
whole objective truth about the redeemed because they're loved by Christ. Loved by, that's the truth. You perhaps wonder, maybe every day, does the Lord Jesus love me? pedals off and says, he loves me, he loves me not. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus loves the redeemed. That's an objective statement of truth. I love them. That's what he said. Now, thirdly, let's look at the supplications of Christ. We know that he has stated things to the Father. He's revealed his thoughts on the redeemed. Most notably, of course, on the apostles that were with him, but nonetheless, those who would follow as well. We've looked at this glory, glory due to the Son, the glory that the redeemed reflect. And now let's see what Christ is praying for. What is he praying for? Well, what do you pray for? We know that the Bible reveals that as our heart is aligned with the purposes of God, He gives us the desires of our heart. And so the real question is, well, what are His purposes for us? Do you want to know that? What does He desire in us? What is He praying for us? Well, we can see that in this prayer. Let's look. Verse 13. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I expect you want joy. Real, viable, durable, infinite joy. The Lord Jesus prays for that very thing. Not just any joy. The joy of Christ fulfilled in themselves. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, it almost seems as if both of the parts of that sentence are saying the same thing, because... We might be inclined to think that the only way that we can be kept apart from the evil one is to be removed from the world. It seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? Well, who is Satan? to think of Satan also in terms of ownership. Satan is God's Satan. 
He does his bidding. He's on a leash. A short leash. Keep them from the evil one. You want to be kept from Satan? The Lord Jesus is keeping you from that. He's keeping you from falling into temptation. But we also understand that life on this earth is a battle. The Bible reveals that we take the kingdom by force. Don't think of a harsh, feelingless individual. But think of this, the factual idea that nobody falls listlessly into heaven. The mortification of our sinful flesh is, is a work. It's sometimes a violent work. But nonetheless, Christ has prayed for us in that regard. Verses 17 and 19, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. These words are all the same root. Verse 17, sanctify. Verse 19, consecrate. Verse 19, sanctify. William Hendrickson indicates the idea here is that they're set apart from the world by actual sanctification of life. So that in heart and mind, in thoughts, words, and deeds, one begins to live more and more in accordance with the law of God. And we also understand that, as Sinclair Ferguson indicates, that this sanctification idea usually refers to a once-for-all radical and decisive act in which God reserves us for himself. It's appropriate, I think, that we see both of these ideas here. We are set apart. We're set apart for God. We're the redeemed. We had nothing to do. We didn't choose to be redeemed. We were a love gift from the Father to the Son before the world was even formed. And we know that the Son purposed to redeem that love gift in time. In time. We also see that in this way he set apart for good the redeemed. He has redeemed them. He has, he has provided the propitiation that for their sins. He has satisfied all justice from the Father. But we also understand that that which is set apart will begin to grow. It's inevitable. We're guaranteed to grow and look like the sun. It's absolute. There's no such thing as a believer who doesn't grow to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. Life works. It grows. It's green. It, it, it begins to produce fruit, we see. Not all the same, but we see that the Lord, we, He has given to us the redeemed. He has given to us this place in the good soil. We also see verse 21. He prays for unity among believers. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this unity among believers uh, is not a purposeless unity. It's a unity shaped around the truths of God, but it also points to God. He references, uh, in a sense, the model of the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. However, we should realize that the unity of believers isn't exactly like the unity of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one in essence. The unity of believers must, of course, by virtue of the fact that they're humans, be not exactly the same, but there is a resemblance. We should also know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the very foundations for this union that believers can have. As the Bible says, how sweet it is when we dwell together in unity. The Lord Jesus is praying for that. He's praying for that. This joy, this being kept from the evil one, this appreciation for the fact that we've not only been set apart by God in a once-for-all final act, but also we've been set on a path of growth to become like Jesus. He, he saves us but doesn't leave us like we are. Aren't you thankful for that? Praise for unity. So here we have the real truth about what Christ is doing as our eternal priest and what he really thinks about us as the love gift from the Father to the Son. So if you ever wonder, what would Christ think of me, the one who is redeemed. Look no further than John chapter 17, where the Lord Jesus is speaking to his Father, and as he says, our Father as well. Let's pray.